0: You know, I just love this time of year. It's not too late to say Merry Christmas, is it? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You know, because Christmas isn't a day. Christmas is about Jesus. And it's about celebrating the birth of hope and salvation and love and, and celebrating the one that comes as our Redeemer and our Restorer. And we can celebrate that more than a day, amen? And Happy New Year. Oh, come on. Happy New Year. Year. All right, you're getting practice for Thursday night, right? But New Year's a great time because, you know, these things about milestone moments. I love milestone moments, anniversaries, birthdays, graduation, holidays. I love milestone moments because they provide us the opportunity to reflect. It gives us a reason to look back over what has been and give some thought about what's coming. It, it gives us the opportunity to make some course corrections. A lot of you know that I'm a private pilot, and so course corrections means a lot to me. And as I was thinking about this word, and about this time, and the season that we're in, the Lord just started to speak to me about the significance of making course corrections. And if you would bring up the next slide. As a private pilot we fly from one point to another. So we start off at a starting place, and we have a destination in mind. And then we use a chart just like that. They're printed every six months or every three months, and and you have to buy a new one so that it's updated with all the new things because things change. They put in new towers. They close airports. They do all kinds of things. But as a pilot, you set a course from your starting point to your destination but then you also need to choose waypoints and waypoints are things that you can see from there like this group of towers right here or where this river is crossing over or this river right here that has a bridge you probably can't see it too well because the red's over it but it crosses under a bridge and a freeway you know there's different things here that you see, other airports, and those are called waypoints. So as a pilot, you choose different waypoints along your course. So then what you do is you get ready to take off, and you take off on a compass heading, and you climb to the right altitude, and you know how fast your plane flies. And so you know about how long it should take you to get to that first waypoint. And so you get up in the air, but there's a lot of things that impact you as a pilot. The winds aloft are not always the same as they are on the ground. So they might try to push you in a different direction. Density altitude will affect how your plane flies. And did you know that airplanes love cold air? They love cold air because it's denser and there's more lift. So they climb better and they perform better. The performance of your plane, just how the engine's running and all those things, it all affects how your flight goes. So when you take off and you start looking for that waypoint, you don't expect to arrive at exactly the right place at exactly the right time, but you know you're close. So you're up in the air and you begin to look for that waypoint. You begin to look for that tower where it's crossing by that river and you begin to, to look for that. And because you're high up, you can see it. And once you finally spot it, you go, there it is. It's a little bit off to my right. So I know that I've drifted a little bit north. And a matter of fact, yeah, I'm about five minutes slower than what I expected to be right now. Okay, but I know that's my point. That's where I'm supposed to be. And so then I make a course correction. I begin to steer south, and I begin to crab my airplane a little bit into the wind so it'll track more true. And I know how long it's taken me so I can make adjustments to my next waypoint. And so I make a course correction. And then I make another course correction at the next waypoint and the next one and the one beyond that. And over time, you make a series of course corrections and you find that you make it to your destination point. And really, that's what milestone moments are about because that sounds a lot like life, right? I know where I'm at right now today, and I know where I want to be down the road. But how do I get from here to there? Christmas and New Year's Eve, and, and some of these things, they're great opportunities to evaluate the past. What's gone on in this past year? How have things worked out? Has it taken the path that I expected it to? Have I continued to grow and mature the way I expected it to? And if not, why not? And evaluate, and then to make an adjustment and to begin to move in the direction that God wants me to move. So how do you choose that course anyway? Well, the course that you would choose during the day to fly between Bremerton and Astoria, Oregon, is quite different from the course that I would choose at night. Light makes all the difference. See, during the day, I can look out of the windscreen, and I can see those landmarks. And I can see those towers, and I can see that bridge clearly where it's crossing the river. But at night, at night, your eyes can play tricks on you. At night, the horizon disappears. There's no clear line. You know those mountains, or at least foothills between us and the story? At night, they just become black. There's not a lot of civilization on some of the mountains around here, believe it or not. And lakes, aren't they gorgeous? Big bodies of water, aren't they beautiful? But at night, they look just like the sky. Because those stars that are reflected off of those lakes that make them so gorgeous, at night makes it look just like the sky. And it's easy as a pilot to become disoriented. Light makes all the difference. So as a pilot what I would do is I would turn on the lights at these different airports at night as I was flying along because you could pick what airport was close to your track and then three clicks on your microphone on that control frequency and on would come the lights and it's, there it is. I'm on the right path. I know I'm safe. There's no mountains here. And then you would make your course correction and then you would turn on the lights at the next airport and follow that. The point is, is we need to follow the light. We need to follow the light and allow it to lead us safely. I don't know about you, but I want to set a course that leads to hope, a course that has purpose and meaning. I want a course that's going to lead me toward eternity and lead me toward Jesus. Jesus. Leading up to Christmas, we have been really focusing on Jesus as the light. Jesus, it says in John chapter 1, was the Word become flesh. And Jesus is the true light. And what does that mean, the Word become flesh? You think it's talking about these pages becoming flesh and blood? No, it's talking about all the truth. All the wisdom. All the insight, all the love, all the revelation of God Himself. It said that that is what became flesh. All of the fullness of the Word of God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. In that He is the light. He is the path for us to follow. See, not Revelation. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this. For God who said, let there be light. And we recognize that, right? Right at the very beginning, the story of creation where God spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. And started to bring order out of chaos. It says that God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts. What is this light, this revelation, this truth? It's Jesus he made it to shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus. That's seen in the presence and the character of who Jesus is. Do you want to know what God looks like? Do you want to know what God's thinking? Or how He would act or react in a certain situation? Then look at Jesus. Follow Jesus, follow His example, listen to Jesus, because all the fullness of God's glory, all the fullness of God's love and grace is revealed in Jesus because Jesus is God. Do you want to know how to set the course for your life? John chapter 8. Jesus, who spoke, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in the darkness because you will have the light. He's telling us that if you will follow me, if you will honestly set your heart and your mind after what's revealed of the character and the love and the teaching of Jesus, that it will tell us what the right choices are. It will tell us what the right decisions are as we begin to walk through life. Pastor Steve, at the beginning of this month, gave us LIGHT as an acronym. And this is something I've reflected on a lot over these past couple of weeks. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He's lighting our life. He's showing us what the the right pathway is for us. He's showing us the course set before us, the things that we're to pursue. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He's helping us to integrate God's Word into our very life. See, when we begin to think about you shall not bear false witness... And then the Holy Spirit says, you know what, that means that you need to be honest and have integrity when you deal with your employer, when you deal with your employees, when you deal with your husband, your wife, your children, your spouse. When Not bearing false witness means you walk as a person of integrity, that your word means what it says, and that you're willing to be held accountable to that. He helps us to integrate the word. He helps to guide our steps he helps to heal our hurts. I don't know about a lot of you, but I know for me, I grew up in a dysfunctional, crazy, alcoholic home. You know, I was used to the chaos. That seemed normal. It seemed normal to be told, well, you don't love me. It seemed normal to watch my mom take her paintings off the wall, throw them in the trunk in a drunken stupor. Wait for her to pass out, pick her up, take her, and throw her back in bed, and then put all the pictures back on the wall. Can I tell you that God's healed that hurt? He's healed that broken family for me. That I have this incredible place of love for my mom and my dad, and and even in all the craziness that took place, God has shown me what an incredible gift they are to me. God heals the hurts. And when we began to allow Him to light our lives and help us to integrate the Word and guide our steps and heal our hurts, we began to live transformed lives. That's what it means to walk in light. That light begins to bring the healing and the change that we can't do ourselves. Last week we learned how Jesus revealed Himself as Messiah through His first miracle of turning water into wine. I began to think about that and how he was saying that I've come to save my people. And as I listened to Pastor preach last week, I was reflecting on the Apostles' Creed when we used to pass along the gospel by our verbal traditions because they didn't have the written word like we do. And as he was talking about the wedding feast it just rang in my ears that he, talking about Jesus, was crucified, died, and was buried... And on the third day, He rose again. And it was on the third day of the wedding that Jesus turned the water to wine. And Jesus is talked about throughout the Scripture, but especially in the New Testament and Revelation, that Christ is the bridegroom, and we as believers are the bride. Not just the large church, but us individually as the bride, and then coming together as the greater body. It all fits together, and Jesus is preparing a bride for himself. He's preparing us for eternity. See, the the water jars in that first miracle that were used were the jars for ceremonial purification. And we're not used to walking around and getting dirty and and just feeling the muck of life on us, but they did. And before they could enter into a time of dinner, before they could enter into an intimate time together, before they could enter in like this wedding feast, and to feel like they were ready and prepared, they had to be ceremonially, ceremonially clean. And so they would use water from those jars to clean the dust and the grime from the outside. And Jesus takes that pitcher, and He takes those jars, and it's that water that is turned to wine, and he's saying, I want to bring that cleansing to the inside. I want to bring that cleansing to your heart, and to your mind, and to your soul. Jesus is laying out something beautiful before us and saying, this is the way back. Today, we're going to look at a pivotal conversation taking place between Jesus and Nicodemus. And I want to take a moment to help you connect with Nicodemus. I don't know when you hear the word Pharisee, because Nicodemus was a Pharisee. I don't know what you think, but I used to think villain, bad guys, hostile, ugly, nasty. You know, you just say the word Pharisee, and I just, it's like bitterness in my mouth, and and I began to realize that I didn't really understand that not all Pharisees were that way. See, to be a Pharisee meant that you were a religious leader of your time, that you were trained. You were educated in the scriptures and the traditions of the day. Being a Pharisee, Nicodemus would also have been aware of what was going on in the areas around him, especially as it impacted the people that he would be responsible ministering to. He would have been aware of that. Nicodemus was also a part of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest ruling body and court of justice for the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. And it was headed by the high priest. So he was not only a Pharisee, but he was also a Sanhedrin, a ruler. So how would we describe him today? If he was here today, how would we describe Nicodemus? Well, we would describe him as educated, a man of learning. We would describe him as spiritually mature. We would talk about the fact that he was important and influential and being a ruler, that he was powerful. That's the Nicodemus that was also aware of the stories about Jesus, about the things that he had been doing. He would have been aware of the miracles that had been performed and the works that Jesus had been doing. And Nicodemus also would have been looking for the Messiah, because they all were at that time. Today we're going to focus on the conversation that takes place between Jesus And Nicodemus, a conversation that took place at night, not because he was trying to hide and slink in somehow unseen, but two influential men taking the time to meet together, to not be rushed, it was a meeting of respect where they could take time and really interact. John 3, 1 through 21. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Let's listen in on their conversation. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can
1: do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can these things be? Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven. But he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. I know that
0: there are times when I read the Scripture that I have a voice in my head that already plays. And as I was reading and studying this, I Began to understand that the sarcasm and the harshness that I had attributed to Nicodemus was misplaced. And so I wanted you to hear it as a conversation so that you could feel the difference of the heart that was taking place at this time. I want to look at this conversation though. I want to look at the words because Nicodemus comes and he says, Rabbi. We know that you are a teacher from God. No one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. See, Nicodemus came and was extremely respectful. Being a Pharisee, he would not have called Jesus Rabbi lightly. He was addressing him with incredible respect. He was saying teacher. He was bringing him up and elevating him to a place of real honor by using that term. and He was coming really seeking answers from Jesus. He knew that something was going on, that Jesus couldn't do the things that he was doing without God being with him. He didn't have the answers yet, but he was looking. But he recognized the hand of God. I find it interesting that Nicodemus' name means conqueror of the people. That's not the idea of him lording over and conquering people, but that's the idea that he was a conqueror for the people, that he was one that, that fought the fight ahead of them, that he was one that kind of cleared the path, that he was one that fought the battle so that those with less ability could come behind him. He was a conqueror of the people and for the people, performing this this work. And I find that really interesting because we see Nicodemus three times in the Gospel of John. We see him here in this conversation with Jesus. We see him recorded again in John chapter 7, where the council is basically accusing Jesus without ever really interacting with him. And Nicodemus is the one that says, hey, this isn't the way we do things. We need to give him a fair shot. We need to listen to what's going on and evaluate. And then we see him again in John chapter 19. As he comes and he helps take the body of Christ down from the cross, and he's the one that brings a lot of those things that's necessary to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Nicodemus treated Jesus with incredible respect. And we see Jesus in this conversation. He just he cuts right to the chase. I love it because do you notice Nicodemus never asked a question? Jesus already knew what was on his heart before he ever arrived. He knew why Nicodemus had come. Nicodemus wanted to know how do we have eternal life? And I want you to understand that God knows what you need before you ever ask him. He's aware of what you need right now, but he wants you to ask. He wants you to ask because there's a certain humility that comes when I'm willing to say, I have a need, would you help me please? You know, I've heard way too many people to make it very human and connected that says, well, they should have known. They should have known that's what I need. My wife should have known. My husband should have known. You know, if they really cared about me, they would have thought about that in advance. They would have taken care of that. They should have known what my need was. And yet there's a picture of saying, I have a need. Would you help me? This is what's going on in my life. There's a humility there that invites you to come in. And and make no mistake, Jesus is not going to force his way into your life. He knows what we need before we ask him, just like he knew what Nicodemus needed. And he said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, that could be translated either way. Our English isn't all that perfect. Unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? can you enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born and and you can tell he just he doesn't understand right now he's not being sarcastic he's like i don't get it jesus what are you talking about what do you mean be born again and and jesus had said i'm telling you i say to you unless one is born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is of the carnal nature. That which is of the out-of-control, self-serving, selfish nature that's just filled with lust and coveting and, and those things. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit. That which is born from above. That which is born of the Spirit. That is Spirit. He says, Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. He says, the wind blows, you hear it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going, but you see its effect. He says, that's the way it is with people that are of the Spirit. You may not see what's changing their lives, but you see the impact. You see the change. Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? You know, the light's coming on, but it's not quite there yet. He doesn't quite grasp everything, and, and Jesus continues to talk. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? Are you trained in the doctrine and the words and the scriptures, and yet you don't know these things? He says, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know. Do you remember back to Genesis chapter 1 where it says, Let us make man in our image. This is the same we. We know, we testify what we have seen. You do not receive our witness. Nicodemus, if I had told, I have told you earthly things, easy illustrations, things that you can relate to. And if you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You don't have that perspective, Nicodemus. You've not been there. No one has ascended to heaven. But he who came down from above, that is the Son of Man. That's me, Nicodemus. But he goes on and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That story that you know, that place that you've taught and trained others, I want to connect this with you so that you will understand. As Moses... Lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you want to know how to have new life? Eternal life? The answer is Jesus, the Son of Man. That's the only answer. But He's taking Nicodemus back and he's reflecting on numbers the story of the serpent and and it says in numbers 21 if you ever want to look it up it says they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the soul of the people became discouraged on the way it's never going to get any better Have you seen these people I have to work with? Have you looked at my family, God? Do you see what these people are like? I expected it to be better when we came out of you. I expected it to be better if we followed you. Life's not fair. It says the soul of the people became discouraged on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of this land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food. There's no water. And this stinking manna, it's loathsome to me. I can't stand it anymore. Doesn't that sound a lot like us? Bitter. Resentful. It's like snakes in our life. You know, I was thinking about this passage. I wanted to bring about 15 to 20 snakes and throw them out, but pastor told me that uh, that probably wouldn't go over too well. He says anything that causes people to call 911 is probably not a good idea. But I think about... Pride, bitterness, resentment, unrealistic expectations. And, you know, I'd like to put those names on every one of these snakes and just put them out. And they began to bite us. They began to bring poison into our lives. And it says, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. They died physically, and they died spiritually. And therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord that he would take away the serpents. And so Moses listens to the Lord, and he says, I want you to make a fiery serpent and place it on a pole. And put it among the people. It would have taken time, wouldn't it? Somebody had to craft the snake. Someone had to carve and mold and put it together. Then they had to put it on the, the rod and they had to bring it out. So, during all that time, the people would have been getting bitten. And some were dying. And some were in pain. And snakes are frightening. But God said, make a fiery serpent, put it on a pole, and whoever looks at that fiery serpent, they'll be saved. Do you think it was the snake on the pole? It was their faith and their obedience. That when they were bitten by the snakes that had been released by their own hard attitudes. That when they would turn back to God and go, okay, I'll do it your way. I will believe that you said that if I look at that and I believe in your word that I'll be saved. And that's what Jesus was reflecting to when he was talking to Nicodemus. He was saying, you remember that story, Nicodemus, about how when they were dying, What they needed to do to be saved? He says, the Son of Man is going to have to be lifted up the same way that snake was lifted up. And we're going to have to look at Him. And we're going to have to have faith and obedience if we're going to have life and be healed and be forgiven. I'm convinced at that moment the light came on for Nicodemus that he got it because we can tell by the testimony that he became a believer, that he believed in Jesus. So why did God send Jesus? We're going to end with this. and, And I want to read to you John 3, 16 from the message. It says, this is how much God loved the world. That he gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, that no one need to be destroyed. He sent Jesus that no one needed to be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole, complete, meaningful, lasting life. God didn't go to all that trouble of sending His Son into the world to merely point an accusing finger and tell us how bad we are. That's not why I came. He came to help. Jesus came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in Jesus is acquitted already, forgiven. Anyone who refuses to trust in Him has long since been under a death sentence without knowing it, and why? Because of the failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God who was introduced. What do you want to be made new this year? When you begin to reflect back over where you've been for the past year and look forward what do you want made new pam and i are going away we do this every year we're going away in prayer and spending time out of our normal routine to actually look back and go what's worked what hasn't worked what's been good what hasn't been good what do we need to do better okay god where are you taking us this year Where do we need to go? What is it that we need to be about this year? Please show us. And then setting out some goals and a course to get there. What do you want to be made new this year? Maybe it's become a new creation and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe it's to have better relationships, more contented, a better relationship with Jesus and relationship with others. As the worship team goes ahead and comes out and gets ready, we'll move toward a close. What do you want made new this year? Do you want to move the wisdom of Scripture from your head to your heart and actually see it start to make a difference so that it becomes action and not just words? Do you want to become a person of integrity, internalizing the Word of God and beginning to understand what that means and how it applies Do you want to become a friend that a friend would want to have? Do you want to be a person that serves Jesus and others before you're overly concerned about yourself? What would you like to see made new this year? By living in the light, the life and the life example of Jesus allowing Him to work in us and through us by the power of His Holy Spirit, all things can become new. It takes work. It takes commitment. It takes obedience and faith. Jesus will not do it for you. He will not Force his way into your life. He will not force you to do what he says. But he will do it with us. To partner with us. To come alongside. To lead. To guide. To be that counselor. That comforter. To be that healer.